Well, here we are, and we are nearing the end of the book of John, as particularly in today is May 14th, and happens to be Mother's Day, and if you read the verses ahead of time, you might have realized there is a connection between this story and Mother's Day. So we'll get to that. What I want to do is not use up all the time on the first couple of sections because there's five different things I want to take you through today as we end in the most important one. As we talk about Jesus on the cross, and we did some of the chapters out of order. So we've already talked about John chapter 20 on Easter and here we are on Mother's Day coming back through the story, and we have gotten to the actual day, uh, not just the, the wee hours of the morning, but we're actually getting into the day of Good Friday. So here we are, and we'll wrap up with these words, it is finished. But we have a little ways to get there, and we're going to go through five parts of the story um, Definitely a typo on that. I'm sure it's not verse 221. Not sure what happened there. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be verse 22, but we're going to go through 17 to 18, a couple of verses at a time. We're going to see um, the crucifixion begin. We're going to see actions by several different individuals who were there when Jesus was crucified. We're going to see what Pilate does. We're going to see what some soldiers do. We're going to see what Jesus instructs the apostle John to do. And then we're going to see what Jesus himself does at the very end. But in all of this, we're going to continue the theme from two weeks ago, that at every stage of this process, Jesus is in total control of what is happening to him. That again, as we said back in John chapter 18, that nothing that happens to Jesus is a tragic accident. Everything that happens is an intentional part of God's redemptive plan. And so as we get into that today, first, before I get into my outline, my further outlines, we break it down. Consider some of these uh, discussion points, and I thought this might be a one to start with. Can you think of a place that's defined by what happens there? Let me start you out with an example, and I'm sure you can help me think of others. But a place that when you say the place, it's famous because of what happened there. For example, the Alamo. That's what I, was going to say. <laughs> I took the easy one. Wasn't that cruel of me? We think about the Alamo because remember there was that standoff there and there was that battle. You know, and, and that was you know more about the Alamo. I should let you talk about it, right? And so we think about that. But can you think of any other examples like that of a place that when you say the place, you think about some event that happened? Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Excellent. We think about when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor there on, uh, in, what was that, December? December. December. A, day, December a day that will live in infamy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because of what happened there, because of the attack. Anyone else? 9-11, September 11th, yes. We'll always remember that because of what happened, because of the bombing of the Twin Towers and the, the loss of life. So there are places that become famous and times that become famous because of what happened there. And we certainly have one of those and that as we talk about the crucifixion. Of all the events in human history, there was none more momentous, none more important. And
And again, though, unlike some of those other situations, some of them were tragic. Some of them were a complete loss of life. Maybe some good resulted after that, but but the event itself was totally tragic. But we look at maybe a hotel Yeah, a fire, loss of life, total tragedy, right? But then if we look at something like Pearl Harbor, was that necessarily, a, there was a loss of life, and there was a setback to our military, but you could argue that good came out of that because it woke up the sleeping giant, you might say, in World War II and caused America to go on the offensive and eventually won the war. So something good came out of that. Well, that good pales in comparison to the good that comes out of our story today as Jesus goes to the cross, but it does give us some things to think about. A couple other questions to have in your mind as we go through these verses. What evidence do you see of God's sovereign control? We talked about it. We saw it in chapter 18. We see it again here, so be thinking about the evidence. That how could you maybe point someone to the story in John and show them that Jesus was not a victim but was in control? And why is Jesus' final statement so meaningful to us as believers? So we'll get to that. To get to that, we have to get moving. So we'll do that. <coughs> so today, it's not just the dawn of redemption's day, but it is the terms of redemption's fulfillment. Every box is checked. Every item is satisfied for our redemption by the end of these verses as we get to verse 30. And so what, what a powerful set of scriptures to go through. So we're going to see in five different ways how everything was fulfilled in this story. So let's open up in verse 17 and 18, and let's look at these verses together. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to the place called Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Now we have jumped into the middle of chapter 19 and we have not read the preceding verses. We will fix that shortly because we will go back and take a look at. Um, but what has happened up to this point has been the Jewish leaders and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, bickering and arguing and back and forth about whether or not Jesus was going to be executed, and we'll get into that shortly. But at this point, the decision has been made, and we see Jesus carrying the cross himself. We don't think that he carried the entire cross, but probably the cross beam that his hands were to be attached to were already tied to his arms and and he was carrying, I don't think he would have been, would have been nailed yet. He didn't get nailed until he get put up on the cross. But he's at least carrying that cross beam. And the difficulty of it is that he's been abused. He's been whipped by soldiers. His back is raw. And so it would have been very, very painful for him to have something, you know, leaning against his back and, and carrying it in any kind of way. It would have been very difficult. Uh, and tradition even has that at some point that Jesus may have stumbled on that journey. And that's the reason why we read in the book of Luke that someone named Simon was, was called upon by the soldiers to help him carry the cross the rest of the way. John doesn't go into that story. He just mentions that Jesus had to carry his own cross to the place of execution. It was probably meant as a, as a form of further humiliation 
that you had to carry your own cross and then get killed on it. It was certainly one of the most brutal forms of death uh, known, uh, brutal forms of, of capital punishment known really ever. Like the, the way that we handle criminals who are deemed worthy of death is much more humane than what the Romans did. Now, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. Um, there's, there's indications that the Persians invented it and that maybe was passed on to the Phoenicians on the east edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and then the Romans picked it up from there. The Romans were really good at assimilating other ideas as they conquered the world. So it wasn't original with the Romans, we don't think, but this, this very, very cruel form of punishment where a man would be, his arms would be nailed and his feet would be nailed, and he'd be in such a position that to take a breath, he would have to rise up to take that breath because he's hanging suspended, and he'd have to push against the nails going through his feet every time to take a breath. So every breath was literally excruciatingly painful. And eventually, eventually that person would give out from the combination of the pain. Um, dehydration was a common result because he's up there, you know, maybe in the, in the hot sun and has nothing to drink. So a combination of things, eventually the person would succumb, but it would be a long, agonizing, terrible process. This is the death Jesus chose to die for us. He didn't take the easy way out. He went to this place, like some of the places we talked about, that had a reputation. The place of the skull, Golgotha in Aramaic, um, I don't know that it had a Jewish a separate Jewish name, but I do know, we, we do know it in some of our hymns by another name. In Latin, place of the skull becomes the word Calvary. Anyone ever heard of Calvary before? So when we think about Mount Calvary, we are talking about the location of the cross, and the, the locals would have called it Golgotha. Either way, it means the place of the skull. It had this reputation. It was a place outside Jerusalem because it wasn't kosher to murder people inside your city walls, even if that person's life was to be condemned as a punishment. You weren't supposed to kill people. It would defile your city. So it was very important for the Jews that this would happen outside the city. And, and so much of what we saw the Jews talking, Jewish leaders talking about uh, in chapter 18 it was so funny. They were so careful not to violate any of their rules, except for the fact that they were murdering an innocent man. So that aside, they weren't doing anything wrong, right? They were so careful to make sure, you know, okay, we can't do this. The Romans have to do the execution. They were so careful to jump through all the hoops, all the meanwhile, they're they're simply murdering their political enemies. Yeah, there was a controversy about the sign put over his head. We'll get to that. You are very right, man. There is a big controversy coming up. Give me two more verses and we'll talk about it. All right. But here, um, the fact that this place, this was a place that had a reputation for death. This was kind of a place that probably not very often. I'm sure it wasn't routine that every week they have some execution. But when they had one, this was a place that was used. It was near but outside of Jerusalem. And so this is the place 
where Jesus is crucified, this place that has this reputation for death. There is an interesting thought, I don't know, we don't really know where Golgotha was, but there's one place that they think is possible, but even when you look at it, kind of the landscape kind of looks like a grinning skull. So it could be, we don't know for sure, that the place may even have looked like a skull, all right? I don't know, I think of us skulls, I think Indiana Jones, you think of those creepy places in all the movies where you can tell by what you're stepping on, you really shouldn't be there. And so this was maybe kind of the eerie place. Maybe there were, I don't know that the Jews would allow the skeletons to stay out because they would not like that. They would have made sure the bodies got buried. But it did have this reputation, perhaps because of its appearance, but certainly because this was a place where people were punished and put to death. And Jesus is there. An innocent man, and yet he is sent there with two others who presumably deserve to die. Um, Jesus associated with criminals, and I'm kind of glad for that. I'm kind of glad that whatever sins we have on our docket in the past, they aren't so great that Jesus would say, well, I'll save him, but I won't save him. I won't save Scott because his stuff he did was just too bad. Here he is with two of the most notorious criminals side by side with them. And let me remind you, uh, it, as Jesus is, why would Jesus be associated with such? Here's the the Holy Son of God, the Holy Lamb of God, next to two of the worst criminals known to Rome in the region. And why would he do that? And exactly is what he chose to do, and there was reasons for him to do that. It's all about him fulfilling God's redemptive plan. And again, because he's willing to be, remember Jesus is, is reaching out to the prostitutes, and he's reaching out to the tax collectors. Oh, the miserable tax collectors. Everyone hated them, right? <laughs> right? He's, he's reaching out to the greedy and the sinful, and even in his death he's numbered with them. But that's exactly what the scriptures said he would do. And so now might be a good time as we look here at the cross and a difficult thing for us to even visualize the horrors that Jesus went through that day. But remember, it was supposed to be that way. And so many had gotten uh, caught up in the romantic idea of the king and the Messiah was going to, to rescue us. But remember Isaiah chapter 53. Let's look at just part of that. We could read the whole thing, but we certainly don't have time for that if we're going to talk about the other things today. So let's just look at verse 7 through 10. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So much we can talk about here. We can talk about how he did not open his mouth before Pilate. And we kind of saw that in the story before. That he had a very short conversation with Pilate. We'll talk more about it in a minute. 
We can talk about him being the Lamb of God, led like a sheep to the slaughter. We can talk about him ending up with a grave with the rich. And that part of the story came true as well, although I don't know that John records that part of the story. Um, maybe he does because he has some connections. What we know is uh, Joseph of Arimathea ended up putting Jesus in his own grave. But here he is. Um, and even though he had done no violent, he's considered, he's cut off, his judgment is taken away, and he's counted with those people. But also notice in verse 10, this was at all points the will of the Lord. This was always plan A. Jesus never had to use plan B. It was always intended this way, that he would be the sacrifice for sin, and he would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So as we appreciate what Jesus went through for us. We also realize that this was the way it had to be. For him to be the Lamb of God, he had to suffer and die on the day of preparation of the Passover, as it turned out. So fulfillment happened there at Golgotha, at Calvary, like the hymn says. There was Jesus at the skull's place, at this place of death. But I would encourage you that although this place used to be known for death, what's it known for now? When you think about Calvary, doesn't it bring joy to your heart because you think that Jesus died for your sins, that he redeemed you? So Jesus gave this place of death a new meaning. <clears throat> and when we sing about Calvary, when we talk about Golgotha, we talk about Jesus who died for us, who loved us so much. Then he went to the cross for our sins. So he turned the whole meaning of that place around, didn't he? This place, the suffering of the most extreme Roman punishment, originally a grim symbol of justice, but now it's the place of eternal redemption. And note that he went there willingly for us. So as we continue the story, let's launch into verse 19 through 22. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. But then he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. You might sense just a little bit of snark from Pilate at the end of this story. And we're going to look back at some of this back and forth between Pilate and the Jews. But Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. And he wasn't too keen on executing an innocent man. But the Jews were very insistent. And the, the way they finally convinced Pilate that he had no choice was framing Jesus as a political rival, as a wannabe king. And that was what they finally landed on. It wasn't the reason they wanted to kill him, but they had to give the Romans a reason to kill him. And that was what they said, that this Jesus, he, thinks, he claims to be a king, and that makes him a rival to Caesar, the Roman emperor, so you have to kill him because he's a political rival. That was their angle that they finally succeeded to convince Pilate on. And so Pilate does agree, as we're going to see, to send Jesus to the cross. 
But he's not real happy with these Jews who had put him in this situation where he feels like he's doing something that isn't just. And Pilate realizes this. So he puts the sign. It was customary to put a sign to indicate the crimes of the person who's being executed. And it would be totally sensible from a government standpoint why you would do this. Okay? In our legal system, don't we always state the crimes before someone is punished? And like, what good is it to punish someone if you don't explain what he did wrong that you don't want somebody else to do, right? You want to be a deterrent that if you do drugs, you're going to go to jail. If you, you know, are a serial murderer, you might want to think twice because we're going to put you on the electric chair once we convict you of this. That punishment is a deterrent. And so you publish the crime that was done. So maybe the next person will think twice before they do that crime. Well, what, what are you going to deter people from doing Jesus' case? Because he didn't do anything wrong. He had to put up a charge. So he simply puts as his charge, not a crime, but his actual identity as the king of the Jews. The very thing that the Jews used to try and get him in trouble with the Romans he turns back on them by saying, okay, I'll execute Jesus because he's the king of the Jews. And suddenly, the Jews are feeling a little queasy, aren't they? We didn't mean he really is the king of the Jews. We just wanted you to do our bidding. But he kind of catches them, and it doesn't, of course, result in Jesus' release because Jesus didn't want to be released. Jesus was there to die for our sins. He may have had a premonition that this was actually true. He did have a premonition. He had a dream at night, or at least his wife did. And his angel appeared to his wife and said, this man's innocent. And Pilate, we're going to see, he was very conflicted about it. He knew something was off. He knew something was wrong. But what he does is by putting this in the three languages so that anyone who walked by, anyone who could read, would either be able to read Aramaic, Latin or Greek, the language of the Romans was Latin. Uh, Greek was the, the language that had gone worldwide, and of course, because of its universality, uh, the New Testament is going to be written in Greek. And then, of course, Aramaic, the local language. So anyone passing by this very public place, it was outside the city, but not so far away that people on the road wouldn't see the commotion of what was going on. They would see the three criminals hanging on the cross, and they'd be close enough often to read these signs. And the sign said, the king of the Jews. And so he was. Do you see this as another sign that God's in control? Even his enemies, who seem to get their way, end up putting Jesus on a public cross that says he's the king of the Jews. The ultimate irony, and in their view, the ultimate insult, and though they complained, Pilate was done with the Jews. You ever been done with somebody? Like, just go away. I'm not doing anything else for you. All right? A teacher could relate to this as the kid who just begs for extra credit. Or the school year is over. It's like, just go away. I'm done with you. I need a, I need a couple months off now. Pilate was done with the Jews. And he wasn't going to change the sign for them. In fact, he was probably happy that they were upset about the sign. He says, at least I get this little dig in at them, that he's your king, and I just crucified him. Good luck on having another king, by the way. 
But ironically, it was all part of the plan. The king of the Jews had to die so that he could be the source of eternal redemption. But let's go back and look a little bit at the story we've been talking about. Here's the preceding verses, verses 12 through 16. And here's the how. It all led up to this. And it's kind of a continuation of what we talked about last week at the end of chapter 18. Um, verse 12, from then on, and let's talk about this is when Pilate fully realized that Jesus was an innocent man, only delivered because the Jews were jealous of him. So he had figured that much out. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and Aramaic gathered them. And now was the day of preparation of the Passover. Notice that little detail. And it was about the sixth hour. Let me explain that. Sixth hour said sunrise. So it doesn't mean six o'clock. That means like noon. So if the sun comes up and say 6 a.m., it's noontime. So there's your timeline of when the decision was made and Jesus was actually sent out to the cross. So he said to the Jews, behold your king, they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So he put him in this position that he asked to choose between Jesus and his allegiance to Caesar and Pilate, as a Roman governor, has to. He's not going to get in trouble with his bosses over this. He's going to deliver Jesus to them, even though he knows something is wrong. But they put this intense political pressure on him. But that's the only way the Jews can convince him to kill Jesus, is by painting him as a rival king. So that's why he makes the sign on the cross, actually ends up affirming Jesus' identity as the rightful ruler of the Jews. Isn't that amazing how God works things out just the way he wanted them? So that's where the sign comes from and the whole dispute over that. So fulfillment at the skull's place and fulfillment with the stated power. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, isn't he? And he is that today. He reigns over all of creation. He does, his kingdom has not come to this world because we still see sin and, and death and despair and misery and trouble. But Jesus is the ruler of the heavens and he is coming back to reign literally when he returns. So Jesus is the rightful king. And we might even look at some of those verses in Revelation. He's a, he's a rider on a white horse, isn't he? And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And we worship him today. That is his true identity. He does have that power. And he will return to this earth to literally rule and reign. Isn't that great? Well, now we move on to a couple little details. As Jesus is on the cross, the sign has been posted, ironically revealing his true identity. And now as we get into verse 23, we talk about the soldiers who are dividing up his clothing. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Everything that happened on the day of crucifixion was just the way God wrote the script. Nobody goes off script here. It's not an improv when Jesus goes to the cross. And this was predicted hundreds of years before it ever happened. Notice there were two things that had to happen. As John records here, the scripture said they had to divide Jesus' clothes and cast lots for my clothing. Now, if I was a skeptic before the cross ever happened, I might have said, well, you can't have it both ways. Either they divide his clothes up or they cast lots. They roll dice. They gamble for those clothes. How could it be both? But we see here exactly how it eventually did happen, that both of these things happened. There were four soldiers present at the cross. There may have been more soldiers assigned to the cross to guard the area. They didn't want anyone riding in and trying to rescue these criminals. Some of them, like Barabbas, may have been insurrectionists. And it may have been, in fact, literally, Jesus may have taken Barabbas' place, and the two criminals next to him could have been Barabbas' associates. We're not sure about that. That could have been the way it turned out. But regardless, there's always going to be a guard, right? Because you don't want somebody's buddies showing up and, and, and lowering someone from the cross and riding off into the sunset. You want the execution to take place. So there's a, some kind of a guard here. At least four soldiers were present. And the four that are right at the cross, they were the ones that were going to divide up Jesus' belongings. So all the clothes he had been stripped down to be put on the cross. And some of the clothes divided up into four neat piles. So everyone gets their share of the loot. This is fair loot. This is a, a perk, if you will, of the soldier's job. They get to divide up the belongings of the person they execute. They didn't go back to the family. That's not the way Roman life worked. The soldiers got to keep all the possessions that were on that individual anyway. But they got to the tunic, and they had a little bit of a quandary. It's seamless. And that made it much more valuable. It would have lost a ton of value if they had taken this beautiful one-piece garment and they had broken it and torn it apart into four pieces. It didn't make sense. So they were practical and said, okay, we can divide up all these other clothes pretty evenly, but this piece, it's, it's probably worth more than the other three piles combi you know, combined. There's no way really to divvy it up, except we're just going to have to cast a lot and see who the lucky winner is. And that's exactly what they did. And unwittingly, they fulfilled the scripture as they did it. And we can look back at the Psalm of David, I believe. Psalm 22. And there's a lot to Psalm 22 that applies to the cross, as you may know. That is, that David was prophesying about Jesus on the cross. His descendant, the Son of God, would the Son of God and the Son of David, as we know, is who David didn't even really know what he was talking about, but he wrote down these prophetic words, and we'll just pick it up here in verse 14 out of Psalm 22. And notice how so much of what David writes corresponds to what's happening in John's account in chapter 19. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's kind of hard to read that and think about what Jesus was suffering on the cross, isn't it? But on the bright side, notice that even as he is suffering, he's suffering exactly the way as was prophesied hundreds of years before. Again, nothing is off script. Everything is under control. It happens exactly as it was said. He's crucified. His hands and feet have been pierced, just like David wrote in Psalm 22, verse 16. And you can see the dehydration in verse 15, the tongue sticking to his jaws. It's exactly as it was supposed to be. There's no tragedy here. There's a loving choice that Jesus has made to go to the cross, and it's just like God knew it would be. Jesus knew what he was getting into. If you're wondering why he was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane, it's because he knew what was about to happen to him. He had chosen to do that because of his great love for us. So here we see that even the soldier's practicality is fulfilling the day of redemption exactly as it was supposed to be. Jesus chose to suffer, not purposefully, not purposelessly, but with purpose to purchase our redemption. And there he is. And as we continue the story, let's take a little aside for Mother's Day, shall we? Because who else was there at the cross witnessing this? There were many people there. And one of great note on a day like today. So as we get to verse 25, we see standing by the cross of Jesus were, number one, his mother. <coughs> Mary was there. She wasn't the only Mary, though. Let's read through all the rest of this. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. It's hard to imagine suffering as no mortal has ever suffered before. Certainly no mortal has suffered more than Jesus suffered. Enduring the most cruel, agonizing form of death known to the Roman Empire. Despite all the spiritual weight upon him, the fact that the Father, for the first time ever, has turned his back away from Jesus because he is representing our sin, all the spiritual warfare that has gone up to this point, all the resistance of, of, of Satan, all along. So the unimaginable weight upon him, and yet he takes time out. Another thing to think about is when you talk about you know, his 
using his clothes. He was hanging there naked. It was part of the uh, which is embarrassment. Uh, yeah, humiliation. All the Jews, this was disgusting. When you think about the Holocaust and the way the Jews were crucified, you know, during the war, uh, they they were, uh, as I understand, when they were put in the gas chambers, they were put in there naked. It was the highest degree of disrespect that they could be exposed to. Mm-hmm. Right, all of that was happening to Jesus. Though an innocent man, the only perfect man who ever lived being treated like this, but yes, absolutely humiliated. And yet, I, I don't, I tell you, when I'm having a bad day, it's probably just best for everybody in the house to avoid me. I may just, I may, you know, I've been accused of biting someone's head off because I'm in a bad mood. I've been accused of that. I don't know that I personally, I certainly typically don't have the grace to, in the middle of my bad day, totally focus on someone else and make sure they're taken care of. But Jesus was able to do this. Jesus, in the midst of that, he, now it's true that Jesus is going, Jesus knows he's going to rise again. But even then, Jesus is only going to stay on the earth for 40 more days. And then he is going to go back to heaven. So he makes arrangements as a loving son of his mother. And he was the oldest son, so it was his responsibility. I sometimes think, why didn't you have your brothers take care of this? They were still going to be around for a while. But Jesus sees John. How do we know it's John? The disciple he loved. John always describes himself as a disciple that Jesus loved. Even when he was the one who asked who was going to betray Jesus, he always refers to himself as a disciple that Jesus loved. What a great self-identity. What if when people asked you to introduce yourself, you just said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. John knew the love of Jesus. The same love we're seeing displayed here on the cross. Who would endure that if not for love? He was also the youngest of disciples. He was the youngest of disciples, and that is an important point because out of all the disciples, John's going to hang around the longest, partly because he's young and partly because we see later on in this discussion with with Peter that, you know, if he's going to tarry till I come, that's not your business, Peter. You just do what I tell you to do. There were hints that John was going to be around for a while. So Jesus knew John was the apostle, the disciple, that he could trust to look after his mom when he was gone. And he'd be around the longest. What a wonderful example that I certainly would never be able to measure up to, but we could aspire to take care of our mothers that are with us as best we can. And I and also to appreciate those who one day take care of us, that we may have spent time taking care of our mothers, and now maybe maybe you're the mother. But, you know, you're worth it. Let your family take care of you if it's your turn right now, because you deserve it, because you ought to be honored, and you ought to be cared for. 
and you you had your turn perhaps and now it's your turn to be loved and cared for and that's what Jesus is doing for his mother his mother was going already a widow right we haven't seen Joseph in the story at all since Jesus was a little baby and we have implied from that that Joseph must have died when Jesus was young and now it's behind the scenes. Jesus never bragged about it, but Jesus has been, in spite of carrying out a full-time ministry, he's been taking care of his mom. He's been making sure she's provided for all this time, and he wasn't going to be there anymore. And out of all the things he could be thinking about on the cross, he's thinking about his mother. Now, when Jesus talks about Mary, he's always very careful not to exalt her. She's not the mother of God. But she was the mother of human Jesus. And of all the things that Jesus needed to fulfill on this day, he pays attention to something that we've lost sight of, to our own detriment. Out of all the Ten Commandments, only one has a promise. Which commandment is that? Honor thy father and thy mother. Honor your father and mother. And it's stated twice, so important, that Moses said it in two different books. Exodus, the first law. Deuteronomy, the second law, when he was reminding the generation they grew up after surviving the wilderness of all the commands that had been given to the first generation, but they failed to obey, and they died in the wilderness. And so Moses repeats all the commandments to this next generation, the generation that Joshua is going to lead into the promised land. And so a slightly more wordy version, although very similar to what you find in, in Exodus, here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long. There's the promise and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And in a day, so many things in this day that I never dreamed I would see in America. One of them is companies saying, if you don't want to receive Mother's Day advertisements, just click this link to opt out. <laughs> that suddenly, like, it's bad enough this happened with Christmas, right? Now it's just happy holidays and nobody wants to talk about Christmas, even though they want, they want to make money on it without talking about it. That's a whole other side issue we don't have time for today. But now with Mother's Day, suddenly it's becoming optional to honor mothers. I understand that Mother's Day and Father's Day have become commercialized, and some of that is bad. I totally get that. But a nation that stops honoring its mother it's forfeiting the promises of God. It does not say if they're honorable. It just says honor. Honor them, period. Whatever they did, good or bad, you honor your mama and your daddy. And I fear for this generation that has lost its grip on that. Moral imperative. The results will be ugly. If we ever turn away from that as a culture, as a society, because the promise is for your days to go well and for them to be long. Is it any wonder we have a generation that's growing up with mental illness, unhappiness, 
and increased risk of death. Have we chosen that because we no longer honor our parents? I simply submit the question. There's a lot of complicated things going on in the world after the pandemic and so on. There's a lot of causes to the turmoil we're in. But is this perhaps something we should think about? In God's view, in God's view, honoring your parents is not optional. And it's not conditional on their character. You honor them. If you're in an abusive situation, by all means, get out of it. That applies, you know, for everyone. But nonetheless, we have to honor those that in some measure nurtures us into this world. And that is not optional in God's sight. And Jesus thought it was so important that he took time out on the cross to make sure his mother would be cared for and honored and looked after. And that is what we ought to have, that same attitude, that it is the top priority to honor our parents. And for those of you who are parents, I honor you today. It is the right thing to do. Whether you're my parents or not, you deserve honor for being a mother and a father. And may that continue and not die in our country. Amen. There's one thing that you don't hear anymore. This, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Yes, sir, no, sir. You don't hear children saying that. In fact, I heard uh, where a child came home, told the mother that um, my teacher said, don't call me ma'am. Well, I'll say this. That's beautiful. That, that is black. Well, some people don't want to be called man because they don't want to admit they're old yet. <laughs> some of that I understand. Like a 20-something-year-old teacher, she doesn't want to be called man because she's thinking she's still young. So some of that I understand. But pray for a country that no longer respects its elders because it is foundational. Out of Ten Commandments, it made the list, right? Just like don't commit adultery, on the negative side, on the positive side, honor your father and mother is there. So all I can say is we have to continue to instill those values in our children and hope that they will come around lest the, our entire culture suffer. So Jesus, by a special provision, he would leave no important detail unattended even while he was dying for our sins. He made sure his mama was taken care of. And... Having experienced some of that lately, I can understand. I can understand. What a precious moment here on the cross between Jesus and John and Mary. And indeed, you see in the story that she ended up living with him all of her days from then on. Well, there are a lot of other people there at the cross. We don't have time to get into Mary Magdalene. We did talk about her already in chapter 20, that she's going to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, the first or in the group of the first to see Jesus raise again. She was an important person. But we don't have time to get into that. But just notice she was here at the cross. She had to be at the cross and she's going to be an eyewitness of the whole thing. And she was. But let's just finish up now as we get to verse 28 in John chapter 19. So after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. 
when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. There's a lot to unpack in verse 30. But before we get there, we need to spend some time on verse 28 and 29. As we read through Psalm 22, and we have talked about this already, that dehydration was a very real part of the crucifixion process. It's hard to take a breath. It's hard for your blood to circulate. You're out there in the open. You have nothing to drink for hours. You're suffering from dehydration. It's part of it. Now, Jesus had been offered a drink before, but it was a it was a, an alcoholic drink. It was a wine. And Jesus, and the part of the reason they offered it was as a mercy. Um, just like we might, someone in the hospital might be given morphine because they're suffering. They're maybe at death's bed, but it, they're just feeling miserable, and you just want to make them as comfortable as you can until the time comes. And so that may have been offered to him as a mercy, but Jesus did not accept it. Jesus needed to keep a clear mind and to make sure he fulfilled the Father's will. And there's a lesson there, you know, that alcohol sometimes gets in the way of that. But regardless of that, it's not until the very end that Jesus accepts a sip of sour wine, sometimes called a vinegar wine. Is that how it's said here? Um, they call it sour wine. Some people call it wine vinegar. It's the same thing. It was a very cheap drink. It was very popular among the soldiers. And they would have had some on hand. And all, you, you might be a little confused about how they could reach Jesus, but the cross was really not did not need to be that tall. They would be able to, to stand up and hand it and, and reach Jesus' mouth with a short straw with the drink. Um, really, the cross only had to be big enough so that Jesus' feet were off the ground. So Jesus was you know, probably within hand's reach. That makes total sense. He does accept, because at this point, he's done everything he's supposed to do, except for pass. So Jesus accepts the wine, but not just, not just so he can say the next words, although it may have helped to, you know, replenish a little bit of moisture in his mouth so he could say the final word strongly. But it's more than that, because this, again, one more time, Jesus does something to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah. Here we go back to Psalm um, 69. I want to get that chapter right. And in verse 21 it says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So there it is. The giving of the sour wine to drink. A fulfillment of that prophecy once again from the Psalms. Again, something that you know, I have to look up this one. My best guess is it's a Psalm of David. That's a pretty safe guess in the Psalms. Not always true. But this was a prophecy, and it's exactly what happened on the cross. And Jesus accepting that fulfilled that verse. There are more Messianic prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet, but Jesus will fulfill those when he gets back. This was the last thing that John records. John didn't record everything that he had to do, and so he fulfills that. Again, everything about the cross was intentional because God loves you and wants to forgive our sins. So then we move ahead to verse 30. After receiving the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
The Greek term, well, wait a minute. I'm not so sure it was Greek. Greek or Aramaic. Now i got to stop and think about this. I have it as a Greek word. I hope I have that correct. But the word tetelesta, tetelesta, that term we use actually a couple times in verse 30. Uh, actually in this section, because back in verse 28, Jesus knew that everything was now finished. That's the same word finished that Jesus says in verse 30. He said, it is finished. This phrase, the single word, tetelestai, is the same word you would have used to say the loan is paid off. Imagine, did you ever make the final car payment or the last house payment? And you said, it's done, honey. We paid off that car. No more car payments. It's mine. I might wreck it tomorrow, but mine today. It's finished. It has the meaning paid in full. And when Jesus gave up his last breath on the cross and died for our sins, our sins as believers were paid in full. Every last bit of it. No monthly payments of 1999 required. Paid in full. Nothing left for us to do but to accept the free gift of salvation. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the meaning of that last phrase. Many things he said on the cross that John doesn't record, that the other gospel writers do. But none more important than this one. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And do you see that was a deliberate decision? Let me just remind you here in John chapter 10. Remember what he said? As we look at it for a third time, as he said, he was the good shepherd. He was the gate for the sheep. And for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. There's good news coming. Don't miss next week. The story is not over. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And you'll have to come back so we can talk about it. In picking it up again, this charge I have received from my father. Actually, spoilers, we already talked about chapter 20. We already covered that. So you have to go back and listen to Ken's Easter lesson again to continue the story. But aren't you glad about everything Jesus did for us? He left no stone unturned. You're not going to get to heaven and find out you have some unpaid bills, folks. He took care of everything. Fulfillment by the Savior's payment. He gave his life to pay for our sin debt. Isn't that glorious? All right. We will be in chapter 20, but it will be post-resurrection next week. <coughs> and then chapter 21 to finish out our study in John. But let's, let's just finish up in prayer. I know the choir's got to get it. Lord, thank you for making the payment. For our sins. We could have never made it to heaven. We could have never qualified. We could have never handled all the details. And yet flawlessly. You fulfilled every prophecy. As our Messiah. Upon the cross. Every actor. Played their part. 
just as you intended, from the Jewish leaders to the Roman governor to the soldiers on hand, you even made time to care for your mother just before you gave your life as a loving sacrifice. We can never repay you for what you've done for us. We can only worship and adore you. Thank you for your free gift of salvation and for who you are, for you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we will worship you forever. May your name be praised this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Am